Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are talking with Denora Gattaccio, CEO of DoSomething.org, about their mission as an organization and the power of young people to impact change. But first we're gonna talk about what we've experienced in our own homes. When it comes to like the mission of DoSomething.org and activism, and I would say like kind of just seeing the baton being passed to the next generation, which I feel profound joy and hope, and also a little bit of being shoved to the periphery. So I think it's interesting to have teenagers who want to change the world. I think, um, you know, it kind of goes with what you're supposed to do at that age. You're supposed to feel all this power to make a difference in the world, and you don't have as much cynicism as you might get as you grow older. But the other piece of that is, at least in my house, you looked at your parents like they were kind of idiots. And um, they, you know, we. I felt it. I felt it really strongly that... Number one, they had a sense of social activism that was well beyond mine, but also that I fell short in their eyes. And it was a little bit of a, it was tough. It was really tough to have your kids editing your behavior. I don't know. Did you have that at all in your house? (laughs) Yes, we had that in our house. And what I found equally fascinating was how many times I had to go to them for explanations. So... I felt like there were so many either things I was reading or seeing a meme or seeing something. And I'm like, wait, what is, what does that mean? Or why are people upset about that? You know, that they had a much better understanding of some of the issues. You know, I felt like, wow, my age is really showing (laughs) in these conversations. Yeah, I would say it was a little bit of uh, the tables were turned. Yeah, so in my house, it started after George Floyd's murder. There, mm. All of my kids were home because of COVID. And there was a lot of conversation around the table about social justice and access and equity and how do we change the world going forward. And I was so in it with them. Like, I felt like, you know why you care so much? Because I care so much. Like, it's not weird that you care so much. But they were way past me in their awareness of the systemic racism. Early in that learning curve, I got it wrong all the time. And I appreciated the fact that they could educate me, but they weren't always gentle about it. Yeah, (laughs) right. And it's funny, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago and I, I was like, yeah, I get it. And I was using all the right language. And then the next sentence out of my mouth, I messed it up. You know, I can't remember what the topic was. And I I just like looked at them and I go, oh my God, you know, and they were like, mom, you're trying, you'll get there. Like they were much more gentle when I was like, you know, 80% there versus 20. <laughs> they, they developed a little bit of a better, a better response to me. Maybe because I was so hard on myself, right? That they're like, you'll get there. I was like, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't have the gentleness <laughs> at all. Um, and we, 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 both Dan and I have figured out, and it's not inauthentic. So if they're listening by some odd chance, it's not inauthentic what we figured out, which is to say, we hope you'll give us like some leeway, like a little, <laughs> a little bit of understanding that we're working hard here. And what I'm about to say is probably going to irritate you, but I want you to tell me the right way to say it. So if, if we own our deficiencies, 
then they will they will be much gentler and kinder about it. Yes. But if we think we're on the same page as them and all on board, there's this kind of like, you're old, you don't get it, move out of the way for us to fix the world. And I do really value that. Like, I'm really impressed with them. But you know, I'm, I'm along, I'm along for the ride. I'm trying. I'm really trying. Where's the effort grade? Where is the A for effort? Okay. It reminds me of the conversations we had with Hamu Nigam about having the experts at the table. And he would say, it's a great way to engage them. Like say to them, like, can you help me understand TikTok? Or can you help me understand this platform? Because they were the natives getting there, understanding it, using it. And it reminds me a little bit of that. Like there is that slight shift when you say, help me understand that. Or like, I really, I'm trying, I'm, it's so different from my generation. Or I just, I want to understand this. Can you help explain this to me? That that does, it makes them feel like, Wait, wow, I've got some knowledge that they don't have. Usually it's them telling, telling me what... <laughs> <laughs> imparting all of their knowledge. <laughs> now well, I, get I mean, to me, it all goes into that same story of of generational shifts. Like the, I remember feeling, <laughs> I was at a meeting one time when we first moved to Cleveland, and the organization, the there was like a women's group still, which I never envisioned myself being part of anything called that. But I was invited in, and I thought, okay, I'll go. And I thought I was invited to participate. But um, when I made a suggestion, the response was, our people don't do it this way. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. So they're not ready to like open up the door and let the next generation come in other than to be present, not to take any ownership. And so now here I am many years later where I'm kind of trying not to be that. But I understand it m- much differently than I did when I was on the other side of the table. I understand how quickly you're made to feel irrelevant and you're trying to like cling to some sense of being important in the story. But the other place where I will say, like, I'm, I don't know how, what percentage close to really getting it is, is gender. And I'm so much better at being able to use like a singular they, you know, all the things that my kids do without any effort and getting there. That's so funny because that's exactly where I fell down to. That was what the conversation was about. And I was doing so well and I had the right pronouns. And then my third sentence, I got it wrong. I'm like, ah, I was like, I was so close. That doesn't evoke the same rage from my kids. I think because like it also, it's just hard. It's especially hard when you when you were calling someone a, gen, a, a pronoun and they change it. It's That's much harder than like even I've known people who've changed their names in their lives And it's Mm. really hard to do that. So they're more forgiving about that than they are about saying something wrong related to race and inequity. I would agree with that. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to just talk about is they're fighting not to be their parents. Uh And in a house where we both do a lot of volunteering, they may not be choosing to volunteer in the way we do. And what I saw was that my kids, they do their own thing. They found their own way to give back and pay it forward. And, and they're not particularly like, guess what I did today? But um, one of my kids during the last presidential election went out with a friend and stood out with, for the lines with coffee and donuts. And it was raining. So that was the motivation. Like you're stuck in line, you're outside and it's raining. And I thought, oh, that's a good human. Like, yay, that's a good human. Not doing, like not following in detail what I'm doing, but certainly finding their own way to 
do something to do, do something as in do something.org, you know, like. Yes. And that's what our listeners are going to have the benefit of hearing from Denora, which is finding your own, our kids finding their own way through that, which is really what do something is all about is that you are coming at it at recognizing that everybody has their own journey and that you're going to come at it, you know, your way in your time. And I love that. Like, I love that idea that you can see yourself in that story, that everyone gets to see themselves in that story in different places. Up next is our conversation with Denora Gattaccio. We can't wait for you to join us. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Hi. My name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Denora Gattaccio is the CEO of DoSomething.org, a global nonprofit organization with the goal of motivating young people to make positive change through campaigns that make an impact. A passionate advocate for an accessible, inclusive, and representative democracy, Denora brings over a decade of experience as an attorney, advocate, and nonprofit executive leader to DoSomething.org. Denora, like, you know, I, we have a whole set of questions we're going to get to, but just in our little banter beforehand, we were having a conversation and you said something that I just really want to dig into, which is, I'm not going to let COVID oppress me anymore. And I'm desperate not to let COVID oppress me, but I don't know how. So how'd you figure it out? This is a good question, right? So every week I've been trying to get my COVID clarity is what I call it. So 2022 is all about COVID clarity. And what am I learning from this moment? I, you know, I fundamentally believe we're in this moment still because we're supposed to recalibrate. We're supposed to be learning. And for me, not letting COVID oppress me means I have to, we have to live our lives again, obviously safely and responsibly. But I even, you know, we're here to talk about our teens. I have preteen girls. 
I was letting COVID oppress them. They were not even having playdates with other kids or living in the real world, except for when they're at school. That That's not normal, right? Like we're not a, we're a communal society. And so my like instant version of not letting COVID oppress me is to let my children start having some of the joy of childhood back, some of the normalcy that comes with that. Because I think, you know, my mother said it to me best, COVID has stolen their childhood. And that makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, that that is really true. And I think out of all the questions we're going to ask, that might be the most significant one. So thank you. And just, you know, <laughs> off the cuff, we started talking about it. So that, first of all, I love the practice. And then also for sharing your wisdom. So I want to talk a little bit about Gen Z. You know Gen Z pretty well. And it seems like from like what I read on your platform and just what we hear, that there's a, a different level of caring. There's this activism in, the, in this generation of worry about climate and poverty and racial justice and gender. So what, what's the difference? What happened to these kids? How, how did they come out like running? You know, it's interesting. During Christmas or during the holidays, I was listening to an audiobook about the fourth turning. It's called The Fourth Turning or The Turning. And it's about this notion of like every three to four generations, we hit this cataclysmic moment in our society where we have to push forward, right? And But in order to do that, every generation in that grouping plays a role in what the future will be. And, you know, the, what was so um, thought-provoking for me about that is like Gen Z and increasingly Gen Alpha, who's coming of age behind them, are the generation that's impatient, right? Like they are the visionaries, the people who are like, no, 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 we have to reset the clock. And I keep thinking of my role as a Gen Xer and like, how do I create space for that? How do I facilitate the change, the radical, the unapologetic, the urgent change that they seek? And what's powerful about their push for change is like, they're not incrementalists, right? In some respects, they they wake up thinking like, what's the table we're going to flip today to say like enough is enough? And I think we have to, multiple generations, have to create space for like that energy, but also fuel it and, and harness it towards good, right? Like what's the strategy behind the flipping the table? Do you, do you like the sound when the, the table falls or are you actually creating the systemic change as a result? And this moment, right, that we're all living through this oppressive pandemic, as I'm now going to call it, it's got to be about getting the clarity for that, like in creating the vehicle for that change that we are seeing glimmers of to, to sustain and not be kind of the flash in the pan of this moment. I think what's different about this moment and what we've created in these young people is they are growing up at a time where access to information is not the barrier to entry for them in a way that a prior generations might have been saddled with or ha saw as a, a hindrance to the change that we might have been fervent or energetic about seeking at some other time. And so how do we help them use that energy, that passion, that knowledge that they have at their disposal towards the long-term good that they simultaneously seek? It's a hard balance, right? Because there's so much energy and you're like, okay, what do you actually want? Tell me what you really <laughs> want to accomplish. You said a word early on, which I had in my brain for 10 seconds to ask you. Anybody remember? It was like minimal, minimalist or? No, it was like the, uh, not interventional. Uh, incrementalist. Incrementalist. <laughs> Tell us what incrementalist means. You know, I, so for me, I've dead, I'm an attorney, I'm an advocate, I'm a nonprofit leader, I'm a mother. I've dedicated my entire career towards eliminating structural barriers to our participation and ensuring that we're centering young people in our democracy, that our democracy is more accessible, inclusive, and representative of all of us. In doing that work, I'm thinking, 
what's the win I can get now towards the war that is the big picture? When I say that young people are not of this generation are not incrementalists, they are like, let's break all of it right now. Like, who? let's not talk about like, can you get automatic voter registration adopted in every state so that you can drive towards that? Like, let's let's talk about how our elections are inherently unfair and inequitable and what's the replacement system right now. And so I think there's something really energizing and exciting about that framework because it's not it's not looking at the construct as it is. It's saying, here's the whiteboard. Let's start over. Man, that is really well said. <laughs> now I wrote it down because, like, Sue, I couldn't remember it the first time. So now maybe at least I can read it and read, read the word incrementalist. So when you spoke to Kamira on Tuesdays with Kamira, you said that Gen Z is the generation of intersection. Mm. Tell us what that means. I love when my words get quoted back to me. It makes me feel like I'm <laughs> saying some good words See, in the world. <laughs> listening. We're not like the children. We're actually listening. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think... This moment, right, let's just name it, COVID, now, I don't know, entering year three, calendar year three of COVID, really exacerbated, but also shined the brightest light possible on the inequities facing our society. And many of us knew those, right? Like, we could write a list and talk about them all. But what's powerful and inspiring about Gen Z and millennials and Gen Alpha is, like, they're talking about the intersection of those issues. So it isn't just about racial justice. It's about how racial justice is exacerbated by your gender, right? Or or by your able-bodiedness or lack thereof. Or about how that's definitely, and you said this at the start, Sue, is about the intersection of socioeconomics with all of those identities. And what I think is why I keep using this phrase of an intersectional reckoning is that we no longer get to be, as a society, be pitted against each other and choosing one identity when we think about how we're going to change the world. They're clear that all of those identities encompass the person, encompass the society, and how do we tackle those kind of root causes of those intersections. Let me just be honest, that's hard, right? Like that's hard work. But I think even naming it is such a big step forward because it doesn't, I don't have to show up as a black person or a woman. I get to show up as a black woman and talk about my, the reckoning that needs to happen for me, right? And how that relates to the larger society. And for so long, I mean, I'll, you know, date myself a little bit when I was thinking about the 2008 election, if we could even reflect that far back, I was like, wait, do I care most about being a woman when I think about who I want to be president? Or do I care about what having a person who, you know, is a black man and understands the racial inequities inherent in our society? Though That construct is not the construct we're living in right now. And that is refreshing and terrifying at the same time. Okay, so Denora, you are CEO of DoSomething.org. DoSomething.org is for young people. You refer on your website, it's always young people. And I hope this is not a surprise, but you seem not to be that demographic. So (laughs) how are you coming in and taking dosomething.org and aligning it with today's youth and what they're looking for? Great point, Sue. I'm not a young person. My kids will soon walk in from school and they will make it abundantly clear that I'm not a young person. And I'm not here to speak on behalf of young people. So I'm humbled, honored, privileged that I get to lead this almost three-decade-old nonprofit for young people. One thing I'll say is I was once a young person, right? So I came of age at the time that Do Something was born in the early 90s in a very different moment in our society when it was, you know, our founders, Michael Sanchez and Andrew Hsu, really were focused on unlocking the power of young people to volunteer and do good and not just like point fingers at and complain about what was happening in the world. 
today, and we talked a lot about this already, we're in a different moment, right? Like the notion of doing good in society is not just about the volunteerism. It's that and it's about how do you lever that up to change that benefits society, our citizenry, et cetera. First and foremost, as the leader of this country, this company, I'm not country. I don't lead the country. Um, please, please, <laughs> we have to center young people. We need to hear from them about the issues that are most pressing to them. We need to make sure that the work we are building, the ways that we can get them activated and sustaining and fueling their journey in this work to kind of get to that more perfect version of our society is with their thoughts and opinions in mind. So I'm never going to be the leader of Do Something who speaks about and on behalf of young people without centering them in the conversation. And I think that's a, to me, is my North Star and kind of a fundamental shift that I want to see in the way we do our work. It's like, how do we know young people, elevate their voices, amplify their voices, help them fuel the change they want to see in the world? Can you talk a little bit about the role that adults play at Do Something? Well, there's lots of resident adults. It's funny, when, when in a prior iteration of the staff, there used, the CEO used to be called the chief old person. And I was like, please, no one call me the chief old person. I really, I don't want to feel that old. And that person was young, is younger than me. So I was also like, <laughs> you want to be called the chief old person? I think the role that adults play in Do Something and in society writ large is being able to hear young people and not believe that their age or their status in society from a legal perspective or writ large means that they are not capable of having great ideas and and being a part of conversations that we would have historically considered quote unquote adult conversations. And so the role of adults that do something is to create that space to elevate, amplify and fuel the passion and the fervor of young people to change the world. My kids, I got five of them and they are always signing petitions, sending us the link going to rallies. When they were home for COVID, we went along with them to the rallies. And I just, I want to know, is that effective advocacy? Or is that like a starting point and then you've got to do the then? Mm-hmm. So we can't say that it's not effective advocacy, right? When we think about ac- advocacy and activism, it's a spectrum of activity. And we have to know that young people aren't a monolith. So they're not all entering the conversation in the same space. So your five children seem like they are on the journey to full-fledged activism. And so for them, the next step might be go meet with your elected official to push for systemic change, for the legislation, for, you know, write the op-ed, take the next step. For some young people, and we had a young person say this to us recently, a Do Something member, I live in a community where even volunteering is not something we talk about. And so for that young person, they are starting the journey in a different place. And so Do Something has to calibrate its, you know, its offerings, its programming to meet that young person where they are, as well as fuel the journey of your young person who's further along or at a different stage in that journey. I don't think we can, you know, it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. And the trade-offs we have to make as parents, as leaders, is meeting young people where they are and then helping to create opportunities and, and open doors to the kind of journey they are defining for themselves. I think what's powerful about Do Something is that we can also be this kind of collective for young people, this hub for how they can fuel that journey and that they will see themselves here, but also be able to sit, whether it's virtually or hopefully soon in person next to other people who share their desire for change, that we can be of home for that as well. I love that answer because you get to see yourself where you 
are and are evolving in that story. And maybe even potentially start to think about where you could evolve to, but you're not there yet. That's right. So I love, it's beautiful. So can you give us a couple examples of some successful do something campaigns that you're especially proud of? There are so many to talk about, right? There are ones like I, I knew of do something before I was, you know, had the pleasure and honor of being its CEO. And so for the better part of a you know, a decade, a decade and a half, we ran a successful campaign called Teens for Genes that was focusing on getting young people to understand the intersection between poverty and homelessness and using something as simple and kind of American, as you will, as a pair of jeans to create opportunity for people kind of peer to peer. And so the campaign really was about getting young people to donate a a used pair of jeans in order to give a person without access to something as basic as a pair of jeans new energy, life, and hope, if you will. So I think of thing, you know, campaigns like that that have had great impact. I think of some of the work that I've been a part of in the last nine months as CEO, where we've really educated young people about the inequity of mental health support in schools as kids navigate, young people navigate this disruption and the, the, the cascading mental health impacts of the pandemic and got not only educated young people about the disparities, but given them the tools through a campaign called It's Not All in Your Head that was actually created by young people for young people, giving them the tools to advocate to their state elected officials for more mental health support, right? Those two give me, give an example, give examples of like, what does that laddering up look like for the young person who wants to go further? Yes, I want to know. I want to put up a poster in my school. I want to give mental health resources to peers but I also want to change the world. They can advocate to their elected officials to do that. And not everybody's going to do both, right? Some people are going to say destigmatizing mental health and putting up that poster was all I could do in this moment. Whereas another young person is like, I want to advocate to my elected officials. And another young person is going to say, I want to see the bill through. And that's my kind of life's work. And so I think what's powerful about Do Something is that we can be we can meet the young people where they are in that journey, to your point, Stephanie, and really think about how to sustain and fuel that short term and long term. I want to say this in a way that doesn't rile people up in the way I say it. All of the issues that you're covering that I see on your website in a world that is so heavily politicized is somehow considered left of center. I don't know why. It seems to me like it should be about humans and not about politics. Is there a place at dosomething.org for people who might be in the other direction, like young people who maybe don't think there's climate change or, you know, some other what of the things that you're offering, which seem to be the core of who you are. Is there a space for other in there? There has to be space for other. Again, I think, I believe firmly and unequivocally that young people are not a monolith, right? And the only way that do something continues to exist and doing this work to fuel young people to change the world is if we know all young people and not just kind of the left of center young person who already has that civic spark lit, we need to understand what motivates a young person from a historically underrepresented community, whether that's an urban one or a rural one, to see themselves as part of this collective we're building. And I think it's really powerful and important for us to do that work and to do it intentionally. Like, you know, it's not just about the young people who find us of their own accord and the young people who an educator or a friend might have said, oh my gosh, have you heard about Do Something? Yeah, I want I want, to, I want those young people. I want to engage with them. I want to help them find their journey. I also want to understand 
why are we in this moment of record polarization in America? And what does it mean for us to talk to young people who don't see themselves as do something members or have been told that they shouldn't see themselves as do something members? And what does it take for us to get them engaged too? That work, not easy work, right? Like that is the next phase of where we're going is how can we be a vehicle for, or a vehicle, you know, for creating a, a less polarized society and one in which talking across divide or even thinking that it's important to have a society that benefits all of us isn't ill. Like that should, like, why is that even a talking point that any of us have in our mind is like anathema to me. I can't wait to see where you go with it. Me too. <laughs> You may have already answered our next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you're new-ish to do something. Do you have a next step plan? Did you just answer it, maybe? The next step is that, yeah. So we are at the tail end of our strategic planning process. And the next step is that, like, what's the next phase of our work? And how are we really driving Gen Z? Yes, you know, they're here, they've come of age, but also Gen Alpha, right? Like, I have two Gen Alpha children, in addition to my millennial child, What are children who lived through a pandemic going to need? What are the most pressing issues to them? How do they see the world differently? And how do we create that space for them? What's missing in this moment to me, and I I don't, don't let me get on my soapbox, is like we aren't a society in the same way that we once were. And in fact, I there is a I have this like nagging feeling every day about how polarized we are and how every every person is kind of out for what's in their own best interest as opposed to what's out, what's in the best interest of, in this moment I'm talking about, America writ large. Do something itself can't solve that. I'm not even going to purport to say that, but I think we can be a part of like breaking down some of those silos that keep us from realizing that collectively we can do better. And I think there's a real opportunity to do that with these children who are coming of age during this pandemic. Like my my daughters are a nine and 11. They have memories of the before time, but not as many as you and I have, right? And how do we get to reset a little bit about where we go from here? I love how you said that, that collectively we can do better. It'd be hard to take offense to that. I hope so. I hope I, I yeah. want to make that. I want to make that apple pie. That's my life goal. Yeah. Collectively, we can do better. Let me write that down today. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Next time we interview you, we're going to quote you on that. (laughs) And you're like, did you actually help us do better? Yeah. No, it's so innocuous to me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, who knows, right? Maybe to me it feels like. We can't tell people it's innocuous. Maybe that's it. We just got to like manifest it. Let's move on to um, the personal side of this conversation, which is when did your own personal activism start? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like this is the story that gets like told and told and told. It's like beating a dead horse. But I think, you know, my own civic spark was lit as a young pregnant teen at a high school here in Harlem, where I currently live, at a moment when I didn't know. I didn't know the words activism or advocacy. I didn't know that like we were going to collectively or strive to collectively do better. I knew about me as a young person, right? And we always tell, we often think of our kind of narrative around this notion of self, us now, and like, how do you kind of gradually telescope out to what's bigger than you? But it started for me with self and just like being told that as a young person who was pregnant, who had made a choice, that I couldn't have the same educational opportunities and access that students who hadn't made that choice did, regardless of whether or not I was deserving of those opportunities, had earned those opportunities, For me, it became about understanding the systems that 
made that made a different choice for me or tried to make a different choice for me and how could I change those systems and so it started with a advocacy campaign for educational opportunity right and and grew from there into you know a young I like to say just a girl from the Bronx realizing that she could be a part of helping to change the world right so I had ended up appealing the decision to be transferred to an alternative high school for pregnant girls ended up graduating on time with honors with my peers and and getting the chance to walk across the stage and accept a diploma with my, I feel like then, eight-month-old child in arms, going on to college and law school and and thinking and kind of questioning myself around, like, what's my own purpose? Like, why am I, what am I supposed to be doing on earth that helps help others? And so I'm grateful that I've had a career where I've been able to use my law degree and my education to help change the world and that do something is the next stop in that journey, right? And how do I use this platform that I have now kind of at the intersection of youth civic engagement and democracy to really fuel the next generation and change the world. It like excites me, somewhat exhausts me every single day. (laughs) So I love that. You, You often say we should listen to young people. You have three of them, right? 25, 11, and nine. How does that look at home for you? Thankfully, the 25-year-old does not live here because I bet it would look a lot different. I mean, maybe yeah, he should live here because he's like the calming force in our house where he's like, you do all know that like this is this conversation has ratcheted up a little bit. Um, so it's the it's my my husband and my nine and eleven year olds most of the time here. And listening to young people, especially during this pandemic, with all due respect to my young people who I love, it's there's been a lot of listening to young people, right? And I want Again, I keep like, what's the clarity we're supposed to take from this moment? Like, why are we in this moment? And I fundamentally believe it's because we have to listen more. Listen to the, and I'm not saying this to be kind of meta, if you will, no pun intended, but like, listen to the world, listen to the earth, listen to each other in ways that, to your point, Sue, we lost sight of. Like, I think technology made us more individualistic and more selfish in ways that we don't appreciate, more siloed. And so there, especially in the peak of the, the first peak of the pandemic back in 2020, we all just listen to each other in ways that I don't even think we heard each other for a long time. And in this house, you know, if these people, when these people come home in a few, it'll be about listening in ways that I haven't, I didn't listen as closely before. Like what's happening in your day and how is that affecting your worldview and, and what you see for yourself and your power and your potential. And I think I'm grateful that I get to do more listening than I used to do, even when that exhausts me. And I'm like, do you still have more to say about this one day at school? Like, <laughs> is there more? <laughs> and and how do I take then just kind of the, the talking and turn that into the dialogue, right? Because some of it does feel one-sided, respectfully to my 9 and 11-year-olds, which it should. For, <laughs> developmentally, it is. It's supposed to be one-sided for them. And so then I'm like, how does that relate to all of us? Or how does that relate to what your sister said and kind of fostering that. And I think that's where we're going to get the magic from this time is like so many of those individual conversations do lead to that collective and the how can we do better. And that's what I'm trying to get out of this moment. I think what you said is a little biblical. Um, Mm -hmm. Didn't mean that. No, no, I mean just in the sense that you know, this, this virus that we can't control and what do we, what's the message to us? Why is this happening right now? I am going to bring up a random fact. You went swimming with sharks. Oh dear. So, you know, I see that and I'm thinking like, is this someone who's like 
big into risk and and um, extreme sports and what motivated you to do that? And then how does it impact how you parent around risk? Hmm. It's a fun fact for sure. I did that one because I had the opportunity and I will tell you, I was terrified much of the time, but initially I was intrigued. Like I, I'm a person who's is curious and seeks input and wants to learn and grow and know kind of up to a point, right? So like there was this point during the swimming with sharks in open water in the South Pacific where I was like, this is amazing. And I've never experienced anything like this. And what am I learning about how the ocean works and how sharks coexist and and how they relate to us as humans, as you know, as as predatory as their nature is. And then I thought, okay, that's that now you've reached a point where this is dangerous. And so I'm all I kind of I, I think the metaphor for me there is like I live my life with a healthy dose of risk because I want to understand a different perspective. And I don't want to think that completely shielding my risk, myself from risk, is a a sustainable or open-minded way to live my life. And so that's why I think this, you know, we started the conversation with my my declaration of the week. It's like Sesame Street, that like the pandemic is oppressing me because I realized that I haven't, I've gotten too sheltered. Like I've gotten too stuck in the the matrix of avoiding COVID. And I don't, that's not the point, right? Like, yes, I should be getting my clarity from this moment. I should be taking steps to ensure that I'm protecting myself and my family and we're staying safe, but I can't live my life completely without risk. So I, you know, even as I think about how to recalibrate in 2022, it's about knowing that about myself again. So thank you for reminding me of that because it's like that smart calculated risk. I just haven't done that recently. Like, oh. And how about, do you encourage that for your girls? Unequivocally, right? I I have a huge responsibility. Um, I take too seriously the of raising these young, confident black girls who will take over the world. I mean, I feel like they take over my life and world every day. And how do I like nurture and and help them harness their strengths and their power in ways that maybe they don't even know yet, or will realize later? Maybe they'll call up one day and be like, "Mom, thanks so much for pushing me." Right? Like that's they don't do it with that in mind. But I hope that they don't feel hampered or hamstrung by how complicated and in many respects nebulous the world can feel. So I liked your um, your comment about, you know, making sure you keep getting different perspectives, which is a great segue into our next question. So if our kids are more engaged in activism than their respective parents, how do we parent through it? Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back to what we talked about before, which is like listening to them and why, why do they want, what do they think that activism will change that we haven't cracked the code on yet? And I think sometimes we just, as parents, as humans, you know, we're all toggling a lot of information and a lot of decision points. And we often are just like, okay, great. Thank you. Moved on. Got the input, but haven't processed the why. Hearing young people talk about the power they have to change the world, but also the opportunity that exists forces us to get outside of our comfort zone and to re- rethink our own assumptions and theories of change in ways that are helpful and healthy for all of us, right? Because at a certain age, you know, there's a there's science that says or shows that after a certain age, we stop listening to new music, which is kind of funny because, right, I get in the car and I'm like, let's play music I listened to when I was in my teens and 20s. And the reason we do that is because it's comforting, it's familiar, in the same way that like some of our belief systems become comforting and familiar. We kind of hold on to them as security blankets in times of confusion, discord, strife. It is 
refreshing, although somewhat disconcerting, to hear fresh perspectives, especially those of young people who aren't necessarily burdened by those same notions of the world, right? And are optimistic about what else can be different. I think it's important for us to hear those perspectives so that we all can keep moving, right, towards that better, whatever the better is. We're going to end this the same way we end all of our podcasts. What is the biggest myth about teenagers? That they think they know all the answers. I think that my lived experience in raising a teenager and doing the work that I do have the pleasure and honor of doing it, do something has taught me that young people are craving information and knowledge that helps them to be their best selves. And so we have to trust them when they might be kind of pushing us and giving us kind of signals that that don't reinforce that. And I think sometimes we all get kind of dogmatic in our positions. And what I love about young people is that they will kind of shake, to go back to the shark metaphor, they'll shake the cage, right? And they'll say like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Why is that what you believe? And, and it's not out of a, a place of superior knowledge or intellect, but really from a place of curiosity. And that's so exciting and refreshing. Okay, you win, Denora. No one's said that before. In all of our episodes, you really? have brought a brand new answer to our question, which is fantastic. Like, don't get caught up in their tone when they sound like they know everything. They're, they're just struggling also. They're struggling to make sense. So thank you, Denora, for taking the time. You were worth the wait. You were so worth the wait. Um, no, no, for real. Um, and just thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.
You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.